Think about a podcast ad about a mattress. No one needs another podcast ad about a mattress, but here's the thing. Your choice of mattress is one of the most important decisions you can make in your life. It's the same thing with infrastructure monitoring. You don't think about it often, but it's one of your most important decisions as an IT professional. So get your monitoring hosted in the cloud with Pessler PRTG Hosted Monitor, now with 50% off monthly subscriptions for new customers for the first three months. Go to PRTG.com and use the promo code PACKETPUSHERS. That's PRTG.com with the promo code PACKETPUSHERS, all one word. Welcome to Heavy Networking, the flagship podcast from the Packet Pushers. Virtual application networks, or VANs, are today's topic. And our guest is Ted Ross, an open source developer and motive force behind the Scupper.io project. Scupper creates VANs largely in the context of multi-cluster Kubernetes. That is, install Scupper in multiple Kate's clusters, do a little plumbing, and you've built a virtual application network that conceptually it's like a like a VLAN or a VPN, except that all the magic is really happening up at layer seven. Don't get me wrong here. There's plenty of layer three and layer four stuff that's happening. Scupper is an MTLS overlay after all. But the interesting things keeping the applications connected are up above the network transport layer where many network engineers focus. Scupper's are architecture is instead focused on application connectivity. And if you're wondering how that works, I'm going to give you a hint. Scupper is based on a protocol called Advanced Message Queuing Protocol, AMQP. That's right. Scupper is effectively a message bus used to interconnect application messages inside of an MTLS tunnel running on top of whatever Layer 3 network is available. Now, <laughs> I just said all that, and if you're confused at this point, do not be confused. Ted and I are going to talk through all of this in some detail and hopefully make it all clear. And if you think you don't care because Kubernetes isn't a part of your world, I challenge you to listen anyway, because I promise you that you're going to run into an application handling messaging in its own way that is outside of the behavior you're used to, and if you only think in terms of TCP, UDP, and quick, and so on, you're going to be asked to troubleshoot this oddball application that doesn't behave inside of those parameters that you're so familiar with. An episode like this will help you get a head start on the thinking required to work all of that out. Okay, enough of me rambling with the intro. Let's get to our guest, Ted. Ted Ross, welcome to Heavy Networking, and in a sentence or two, would you tell us who you are and what you do? Yeah, thanks, Ethan. Like uh, Ethan said, my name is Ted Ross. I'm a software engineer at Red Hat in the uh, greater Boston area. My background is networking and embedded software, um, and I have a particular interest in distributed systems, basically. So I kind of worked my way up the stack during my career. I started in uh, embedded diagnostics, embedded firmware, device drivers. I even did a stint in uh, for a couple of years in ATM, asynchronous transfer mode, which has nothing to do with money coming out of slots. I took a job at Red Hat uh, working in a high-performance messaging group, and I discovered that the messaging world really doesn't know much about networking. Uh, They've got really good APIs, really good developer experience, but when it comes to distributing widely, they didn't really understand how to do that. And uh, I've kind of spent my time since then pulling these worlds together. Which I guess would be a, an interesting way to summarize the Scupper project. So uh, so in a nutshell, would you describe Scupper? What's it do? Who's it for? Major use cases? That kind of thing. Scupper is really about, it has become about hybrid cloud service interconnect. Kind of staying away from the word networking because it's totally overloaded. It's about connecting processes to other processes no matter where they are. And the problem here is that, well, I've got all these constraints in my network. You know, I've got overlapping CIDR networks. I've got firewalls and DMZs that face in all directions. I've got, you know, IPv4 and I've got IPv6. And if I'm in Asia Pacific, I've got pure IPv6. And getting all my stuff to connect together is actually quite challenging. Um, In a lot of cases, when you're doing it 
at the network level. And what Scupper is, is an overlay that you can deploy between your network and your distributed application. You don't need privileges, it's user space, and it abstracts away all that complexity and gives you effectively a flat substrate on which to build. So it's it, one of the things that's very important for it is that we, we try to build this independence, um, orthogonality of you know what's the shape of the network and what's the shape of your application. We want those things to be in, independent. So I don't have to build my application around the network. So when you say me, I don't have to build that. You're talking about the developer, the developer perspective. Yes, the developer and kind of the you know the application owner or deployer perspective. So the you know the promise of hybrid cloud is that well I want to be able to put my stuff where it needs to be. I want to purchase compute power from where it's cheapest. I want to put my front ends where my customers are. I want to scale up my compute power based on demand. I want to keep databases where I'm by regulation required to keep them inside my private enterprises, et cetera. So these are all challenges. You know, the network that we have today, the TCP IP network that's global, it's really performs well, it's extremely reliable, but it's built around client server architecture. And it's it's kind of designed for client server architecture. And that's the way, you know, it has been used and that's why it's been able to scale so large. You've got kind of this vertical orientation. I've got hundreds of millions literally of overlapping private networks where my clients are. I've got one public network where my servers are and my applications are built with their own protocols, their own addressing, their own, you know, ways of saying who can talk to who, all that kind of stuff. So Scupper is going to abstract a lot of that away, make it easier for me as a developer to interconnect my applications and not have to worry about the fussiness of layer three networking and filtering and, and, and these sorts of challenges that can come up. Right. And that's the idea. You, you mentioned in your intro, you talked about AMQP and the messaging aspect of this. So I really want to emphasize that Scupper is not a messaging product. It's not middleware messaging. There's no brokers, there's no queuing, there's no transactions, there's none of that stuff. But AMQP is really the transport um, and it's a really capable transport. And it was built for messaging, but we're not using it for messaging in this case. We're using that transport to do service to service interconnect. We're going to get into the details here, Ted. We definitely are. But there's some more high-level questions I want to ask first. And one of those is I was digging through Scupper documentation. And Scupper docs describe a, a very Kubernetes-centric installation progress. So is that really the only scenario in which I'm using Scupper is, is Kate's? It's not. What actually happened, Scupper has actually existed since before Kubernetes actually became popular or was invented. Uh, Scupper is based on the Apache Cupid dispatch router project. It's a fork of that project. And that's been around for some 13, 14 years, I guess. You know, it was really about continental scale messaging networks, being able to, you know, build reliable, redundant networks for, for messaging purposes. Its original deployment really was bare metal. And it's it's built around a bare metal environment. And then, you know, but with the advent of Kubernetes, when Kubernetes became popular, it turned out to be a really great place to deploy this technology because Kubernetes takes care of all the local networking for you. It does all the integration with DNS. It hooks everything up very nicely for you. So it's a very good fit, but we don't require Kubernetes. Okay. So even today, uh, this isn't just historical then, even today I could use Scupper without Kubernetes at all. Correct. Correct. Yeah, it can be it can be deployed in a container in uh, Podman or or Docker. Um, you can even deploy it as a uh, as a straight service, you know, running on your Linux system. Uh, interesting. All right. 
another kind of overview question. You and I had a separate planning meeting to kind of get ready for this podcast, and you describe Scupper Networks as, as ephemeral, as in we're not supposed to think of these virtual application networks, these vans, as as permanent infrastructure. Okay, if that's the right perspective or way to think about a van as something that's ephemeral, walk us through the life cycle of a Scupper van. Yeah, that's 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 an important aspect. We find that this is actually of, of interest to a lot of prospective customers and users. Again, Scupper is it's it's an overlay network. You can even think of it as almost a middleware that you can deploy. Uh, it's not something you link to, but it's a, it's it's an application that you can deploy, and it can be set up by a user without privileges. So I can set up a network, for example. It's think of it in two stages. I create the network, so I can put you know Scupper routers where I want them. Um, you know, the simplest case might be I've got one in my data center next to my mainframe, for example. And I've got another one running at AWS Kubernetes where I wanted to deploy some workloads, perhaps running on GPUs that I've rented. I can then connect these together for the time that I might do some processing work on data from my database, and then I can shut it down when I'm done. And there's no residue. I didn't you know, I, I don't. I didn't open holes in my firewall. I didn't create a VPN. I don't have to call anybody or file any tickets to clean things up when I'm done. So it's. I can set it up very quickly, and I can tear it down very quickly. I like the way you put it that there's no residue. Um, that's that's interesting. Yeah, that's an interesting way to put it. And that's actually a problem where we call it like you know, un- unreversed exceptions that are made into your networks that accumulate. Well, if you're modifying firewall policy, that you just you mentioned that as one of the, the and it, that is a classic. Whether it's a firewall that's also terminating VPN tunnels, there's a whole bunch of just policy artifacts that get generated to, uh, to to terminate the tunnel and then filter what's allowed through the tunnel. And maybe there's routing that has to go on, and there's a bunch of stuff that has to happen to make that. If you, and you're talking about something that, as a network engineer um, working down the stack closer to the wires. I would have to fuss with to bring that up. But uh, in the case of Scupper, I sounds like as an end user, I could create this, stand up this virtual application network, and the network engineering team doesn't need to be bothered to bring this whole thing up. Is that, does that sound right? That's exactly right. Yeah, it's a way of separating kind of the application aspect from the infrastructure aspect. So as long as I can make an MTLS connection, a TLS connection outbound through my firewall from my enterprise to my cloud namespace, for example, then I can establish this network. That connection becomes a symmetric tunnel and can go both directions. So related to this, uh, in our planning call, you also mentioned that Scupper gets resistance from traditional network engineers. Why do you think this is? I think people who are really thinking networking, first of all, they often say, well, we, you know, we can figure this out at layer three. We can do some cleverness. We can do some automation. We can do some orchestration that'll make this all work. I can build a, a very large layer three overlay that goes everywhere I need to go. And that's often true. So that's kind of the mindset is that we don't need this. Um, the other part is that since it is an overlay and there is encapsulation involved, you know, there's there's obviously there's the objection that well, there's you know there's some overhead involved in this as well, which is true. But on the other hand, we've raised the abstraction and we've provided capabilities that you might not have had in in the first place. You know, for example, the ability to join two vans together. If I've created an overlay IP network for some purpose, and I've got another overlay IP network for some purpose, I can't bring those together. I have to kind of redesign them from the ground up. Whereas with Scupper, I could just hook them together and they will fuse automatically. (laughs) 
It's interesting that you that you put it that way um, as far as why the resistance is coming. A network engineer going, oh, I could build a thing to, to do it and we can do some automation and magic and so on. Yet me, the old salty network engineer who's had to build and then support a lot of these things, I'm going, well, you got a thing that'll just do it? Uh, right. Yeah, do that. <laughs> I don't want to build you with the layer three overlay and have to deal with that for the rest of my life. Thanks. So that's, that's I, I thought, and I also thought an objection might be security related. Like, wait, you're building tunnels between applications and I can't control it? That the, I mean, the, the control factor and security, and I want to filter these things and have, uh, you know, firewalls that are that are logging as these packets go through or, or something like that, I guess. Yeah, and that, that's also true. But on the other hand, Scupper has been uh, subjected to a number of very tough uh, security audits. And it's actually come out pretty well because it does actually really lock things down in its own environment. I think we'll probably get to this uh, in more detail as we go through this episode, but there's some really good security benefits to, to Scupper. And that's, that's how I counter that thing. And I'm, I don't want to say that all network engineers don't like this. I'm just saying that sometimes the networking community looks at this and says, uh, what are you doing? Why do I need this? Yeah. Okay. Well, let's get into the uh, some of the nuts and bolts here, Ted. I have a lot of questions for Ted, everybody. A lot of questions. So let's dive in, Ted. <laughs> so from a networking point of view, we've already established that Scupper is an overlay. So let, let's start with that. If I'm a network engineer, I'm looking at Scupper packets going by on the wire. What, what am I going to see? All right. So assuming you can pull apart that TLS tunnel and you can look at the clear text, what you're primarily going to see is uh, AMQP frames. So AMQP is a, it's a transport, but it has the um, benefits of being you know, completely symmetric and having a multiplexing ability and a framing ability. So it's got this framing layer, and that's what you're going to see. You're going to see frames containing uh, transfer packets, effectively, that are the content of various different service interactions. So if I've got like a, a web server or an API server, you know, using providing a REST API in one part of my network, and I've got some client on another part of my network using that, then what you're going to see inside these frames is the HTTP uh, API content going back and forth. But you're going to see interleaved with others. So if there are many services and many clients, you're going to see that all interleaved. And there are going to be handles in the headers of those um, transfers that will tell you which flow you're dealing with. That as opposed to I might see in a traditional HTTP setup, uh, quick or TCP and multiple different conversations happening on different sockets. And I could be filtering out different conversations that way. This sounds uh, similar, but different. I'm still seeing HTTP calls, but encapsulated inside of an uh, AMQP frame. And I'm only going to see those again if I was able to decrypt what was inside this uh, MTLS tunnel, which is kind of another question. Is that an easy thing to do if I have access to the right keys that I could decrypt what's inside that tunnel? Uh, well, you can. I think a lot of like Wireshark and other tools that are similar, if you can give them the certificates, we'll uh, take it apart for you. And Wireshark will even pull apart the AMQP for you and show you the different flows. Well, tell us a little more about AMQP then, because as I was reading up on this, it's a message bus protocol. And you said this a little bit earlier, you're not really using it as a message bus as such. You've, you've mapped its functionality for application communication, such as HTTP API calls and so on. So how does this work? Yes, AMQP is it's a really interesting protocol and I, and it, you know like you said before the acronym stands for advanced message queuing protocol. To me that's actually not a good name cuz queuing has nothing to do with it, right? I would have called it the advanced message transport protocol 
that you could use then in a queuing system because the queuing is really outside of the specification. The queuing is part of a message broker that, that's doing a lot of high level, you know, middleware messaging kinds of things that we don't do at all here in the Scupper project. But the protocol itself is really well suited to advanced communication. So it's, you know, like I said before, it's symmetric. So there's no client and server role. This is really important for what we're doing because once the connection is established, you know, the, the MTLS has a client and a server, obviously. But once the tunnel is established and running, there's there's total symmetry. There's no, it's just a peer and a peer. And they both have the same rights and privileges and, you know, capabilities. There's no uh, distinction between a client and a server. It also provides um, multiplexing. So I can run many conversations over this channel that are completely independent and they're independently flow controlled and they're independently you know, reliable to the de degree I want them to be. It has a notion of addressing so I can address my content. So all these things, if you think about the symmetry, the multiplexing, the addressing, these really are the fundamentals that you need to build a network. So if I'm going to build a network out of components that use this protocol, well, I need to be able to put lots of different things over my connections. For the multiplexing, I need to be able to address my content so that I know where it's going. And I need to be symmetric because I don't necessarily, at the network level, know where my clients or my servers are. They, they could be in any different place. Does the tunnel itself, this symmetric tunnel that can be multiplexed, um, does it terminate between scupper routers or does, it, does the termination actually happening on what would be the client or the server in any given instance? And that's actually a key distinction about the way scupper works. It, it is terminated from router to router. So if you think about the routers, and I can create a topology of routers that's of arbitrary shape and i can have as much redundancy as i want between it what i actually do is i create these amqp connections between the routers in fact i create multiple connections because that gets me a kind of a trunking performance gain but yes i'll have effectively amqp connectivity between the routers the routers then say who are my peers what's the network topology look like what's the lowest cost path from any point to any other point and then i will use this addressing mechanism to work with my routing protocol, which I'm sure we'll get into. My routing protocol, not network routing protocol, but something happening again up the stack within the, the scupper world. Correct. Yep. Yep. Okay. So that topology gets built. Um, so now I've got at the client and the server, um, they don't know about AMQP and that there's a scupper overlay network there. Their calls are going back and forth one to another. Traffic is gets from the client, let's say, gets sent to a scupper router the scupper router looks at that call packages it in amqp message frames ships it across the tunnel uh, the other side receives it um, decapsulates it and then forwards it on to the destination exactly okay over a network that uses the service name as the address so there's no host addressing here and the encapsulation you know, one thing i didn't mention is that, it, that the mqp supports um, streaming as well in the messaging world i could send a a message that was actually like a video stream or a very, very large piece of content, you know, gigabytes of content. And there's no head of line blocking because of the framing, it's all picked apart and can interleave. So the way we do the encapsulation to be the most efficient is we take the TCP connection and use two streaming messages for that connection, one for the 
client to server and one for the server to client. So it's basically a streaming message that we're sending across to carry the TCP content. One, I guess, very fundamental question is, since the client and the server don't know anything about the scupper overlay network, how does traffic make it from the client to the nearest scupper router? That's kind of dependent on the environment. So let's talk about Kubernetes because that this is the simplest case or the simplest to understand case, I think. So <clears throat> when, once you've created this network, kind of two phases, I've created the network, I've got my routers connected together, everything's good. Um, now the next step is, well, I want to expose particular services on this network so that I can connect them from other locations. So the way that works is in Kubernetes, a Kubernetes service is created. So <clears throat> think of service as basically an available socket. That's, you know, I'm in a namespace. I've got a service. The service is effectively an open socket with a name that I can attach to. So I use that name, DNS resolves to the IP address of that service. And that service then attaches me to whatever process is providing that service. In the case of Scupper, the service redirects that call to the router and the router acts as a proxy. A lot of Kubernetes network services function, that's, that's what they do. That's the natural behavior. So that, that makes sense. Right. So on the client side, that's the way that works. On the server side, the, the control plane for Scupper actually, you know, if, if I'm exposing a deployment that has multiple instances, it will track those instances. And the egress router on that case will, will then open the connections to the appropriate service instance. So if I don't have to use Scupper with Kubernetes, I have the ability to build a Scupper network without, um, what magic happens there? Yeah, so the same thing happens if I, if I were like to deploy it on a bare metal system, say in a Docker container, then that, that container can also then make connections outbound to bare metal services that are on that network, or it can open a socket that is basically a proxy for something that's out in the public cloud or someplace out in the van. The DNS in that case is kind of left as an exercise to the deployer at this point. You know, Podman and Docker have, have some capabilities there where you can create a name for your container and that name can then be resolved through DNS. But, you know, this, this is an area for some interesting future work. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that, you know, there's things that we could do to integrate in with the resolvers here to provide naming access. As in DNS is going to resolve me to my nearest scupper router instead of to whatever its real IP address would might be. Correct. So I could use a name that references my service inside my van. Yeah. Okay. And that and that name, if that were name were then to resolve to, you know, my access point effectively, my proxy, then I could then use that to talk to that service as though it were running on my on my local host or in my local LAN. Well, let's talk about that a little bit more then, uh, since since you brought up DNS. A listener actually brought Scupper to my attention, uh, Jason, and uh, Jason actually asked a question for you, Ted, for this episode. He says, I I'd love to know how Scupper integrates with DNS when sockets are created by containers that are going to be using Scupper to reach remote servers at the other end of the Scupper network. DNS is commonly the root of all connectivity problems, right? Rule number one, it's DNS. So Jason is wondering if Scupper requires careful planning around naming things or if it alters well-known assumptions in troubleshooting about DNS and IP sockets being created in an application. You, you kind of just answered it, but I think, uh, yeah, just, just go ahead and react to that. Yeah, we could probably talk a little bit more about it. But yeah, I mean, DNS fundamentally is the means by which we can convert a name into an IP address, into a network address. And that's 
you know, that's where it started. I just don't want to remember IP addresses. I want to use names. But, you know, as people are trying to do more distribution and do more fancy things with networks, you know, with overlays and such, they, they put a lot of, of that weight on DNS where, you know, okay, well, DNS from my location is going to convert this name to a particular IP address that is going to work from here. That means some place, some service in place, other place. And it does require careful planning and, and a lot of work. In Scupper, DNS and IP are really just on-ramps. So they need to get you to the thing, the local proxy that you need to be talking to. But the planning that's involved really is what do I name my services in my network? And this is not an, an automated thing. That is a scupper router that knows about, it's got a bunch of vans uh, that are available and so on, isn't going to populate DNS with those records via some standardized naming scheme. It's up to a network administrator, DNS admin, to, to, to populate the uh, DNS table with the right sort of entries? It does in Kubernetes because mm. Kubernetes has, has those hooks and, and makes that work. Yep. <clears throat> Outside of Kubernetes, it, it eventually will as well. I think it, it will populate you know, in in the whatever the local resolver is, and this kind of depends on the operating system you're running and all. You know what the infrastructure is, but at current state, it does not do that. Okay, Jason, and hopefully that that answered your question uh, pretty well. Yeah, it matters a lot. You got to be careful with it. Yep. <laughs> in Kubernetes, you've got service discovery and so on, and uh, and scupper hooks in. If you're using it outside of Kubernetes, then planning, careful planning required. All right, Ted, next uh, nerdy question for you. Does AMQP care about IPv4 versus IPv6? And there's two, really two layers here where this might matter. There's the transport layer that the overlay is riding on. And then there's, you know, up at the, uh, the application layer, I guess, the, the virtual application network. Short answer is no. It doesn't really care. It runs it, as a protocol. AMQP runs over TCP. So it will run over, you know, any, any version of IP that you happen to have deployed. Um, and then the up the upper level again, it doesn't care because the router, when as it acts as a proxy, can answer either IPv4 or IPv6, and it will do the encapsulation in the same way. You could have a router, presumably in an, in an IPv6 environment, a pure IPv6 environment, and another router in a pure IPv4 environment. They could be hooked together in a network, you know, via some common point that maybe talks both and then a client on one can talk to the server on the other and vice versa so kind of related to this since we're talking about uh you know lower down addressing transport addressing does amqp care about nat and i guess i'm thinking about mtls tunnels i mean if we have to pump them through nat which which is going to happen a lot in all these scenarios we're talking about deploying scupper uh, i'm assuming it's a non-issue it's an issue. Yeah. That's actually one of the key benefits, right? If like, I, I just made the illustration about a pure IPv4 and a pure IPv6, but the other one that's maybe more simple to think about is if I have two private networks, let's say both networks are configured as 10.1.1.1, you know, slash 24, right? And they're private, they're separate independent private networks. And I've got a scupper router in each one that's connected to a third scupper router that's someplace in the public network. Then a client on one of those networks can talk to a server on the other directly, even though the client and server may literally have the same IP address. <laughs> okay, so there's some substitution happening there somewhere. That is happening. Yeah, there's no substitution because what's happening is the IP address is really only locally significant. The client 
connects by whatever DNS magic happens, it attach, it actually connects to its local router as proxy. The router now does layer seven stuff where it's saying, oh, the best path is actually through this intermediary and back down. And that other router has no idea where it came from. It just says it just, you know, it came here, it's actually service S. And I'm, I've got a server for service S, I'll make a connection outbound and it works. So I didn't have to build into my application any knowledge of this. A piece of the puzzle just came together for me, which is remembering that scupper routers are acting as proxies. And as soon as that happens and you're now you're just talking in between scupper routers, the endpoints don't know each other's IP address. It's not a tunnel in that sense because we've moved up what's going through that tunnel to this to the to these services, to these applications, the the virtual application network. And so the right, the local IP address of the host, who cares? It doesn't matter. We've made those irrelevant. You can draw a parallel to the past, right? So, you know, back in the days when we had LANs and everything was a MAC address and all of our name resolution went to MAC addresses, you know, things worked great, but we didn't, we couldn't spread out. So when we abstracted to layer three and TCP IP turned out to be the winner in that battle, right? Then what actually happens is, okay, well, I'm not going to, I'm going to use the layer three address now to reference something, but what's actually happening is that, well, that layer three via ARP is going to actually reference some MAC address of some local router, which is then going to, you know, use some automatically orchestrated, you know, data links that go across the world. And then they wind up at the router where my destination is. And then, you know, from layer three, it looks like I'm directly connected. But at layer two, there's a whole bunch of magic going on. Well, Scupper is actually doing something similar at layer seven, where it's saying, well, I'm actually going to use the service name. And I don't know that I've actually got an automatically orchestrated bunch of layer three network links that are forming that that connection. I love this. Now I'm starting to wonder, wait a minute, why aren't we using this or something like this at a larger internet scale? Because it solves an interesting number of problems. I think it maybe it creates some new problems too. I have to think about this, Ted. It does both, but it's, it solves a lot of, of auto vexing problems. Yes. Yeah. Uh, okay, flow control. How does AMQP handle flow control? That is, um, you, you mentioned this earlier, you're talking about interleaving, but but by the, the context is how do we keep a noisy application? Like you mentioned streaming from hogging the whole channel because we're not relying on TCP at this point for congestion avoidance or dequeuing algorithms or buffers to to do that for us. Right, and AMQP, this is actually one of the strengths of AMQP is that it actually has a two-tiered flow control mechanism. Um, there's a blog I wrote about using AMQP as a transport and in there, there's a diagram that I think was titled the anatomy of an AMQP connection or something, something along those lines. But what, what it shows and, and what, what it is, I'll describe it, is that I've got an AMQP connection. Think of that as a pipe. And that is just a TCP stream, bidirectional. And within that are subpipes. So inside that, I've got these pipes called sessions. And inside the sessions, I have pipes called links. So there's actually you know, three different layers here of hierarchy, if you will. And the links are unidirectional. That's where I actually do my transfer. And the sessions are collections of these links. And the sessions have a windowing flow control mechanism that I can tie to my memory use. And and this is actually quite useful because I can say I've got a session and I'm going to allocate to it a certain number of megabytes of buffering, for example. And it won't use any more than that. So I'm never going to receive more than X bytes on this session because the protocol is going to shut me down and put back pressure on on the producers. So that means that if I have two sessions on a connection and one of them is completely congested, carrying streaming video or whatever it's carrying, I can have another one that's sitting there that's actually I'm using for, you know, event transfer command and control. And it's wide open. 
so it will not be congested. You know, e even if my videos are totally backed up and failing because they haven't got enough bandwidth, that's my command and control will go through smoothly and, and quickly. You said memory. So the way we're choosing to limit how much traffic a particular data stream can, can consume is by saying you've only got so much memory available. I guess maybe would it be fair to compare it to a, to a buffer? Here's a buffer. If you fill it, that's it. We're going to send you a control message back saying, hey, slow it down. Something like that? It's, it's like that. I would call it, it's more like a pool of buffers. So I've got a pool of buffers that has a limited size. And I wish to say that I'm, I'm only going to allocate a certain amount of those to a particular session or to a particular conversation or set of conversations. So it's not quite like reserving uh, memory, like like RSVP res reserving a number of, you mm -hmm. know, some amount of bandwidth on a channel. It's more like more like rate limiting. Like I, I used to deal with a, a simple QoS problem where sometimes an FTP transfer would go across a, a very low, uh, low bandwidth link and clobber it. Nobody else could get anything through. The way I solved it was uh, traffic shaping. This big uh, elephant flow can't use any more than X percentage of, uh, of the link that left room in the channel for everybody else. It feels, it feels more like that, what you're describing. I think it could be used to do that. Yeah, there's another one also that, so at the session level, there's that kind of that windowing, you know, memory allocation based flow control, but at the link level, there's a credit based. And so the server on that side, or the receiver, whatever, you know, whatever form that is, the receiver can say, Here, here's how many deliveries I'm willing to accept. And that will then meter the amount of information that comes in as well. But, but of course, in that case, a delivery is like a message. So that could be a very large message. But it, it's a way of saying that, you know, I'm, I'm open for I'm open for business. Now, again, this is not in Scupper. My endpoints, my services don't have access to this. They're, they don't know anything about the underlying protocol, right? They're just they're just opening sockets and talking. But what this is, this is with the way the routers when they talk to each other, um, manage their traffic flows. Okay, as the routers talk to each other, right. So when you were talking about control messages going, hey, you're sending me too much, that's in between AMQP nodes, routers on the uh, the Scupper network, not going back to the, the sender, because the sender doesn't know anything about this. The sender is speaking TCP, and so the, the sender is going to respond to normal TCP algorithm stuff, basically. Traffic didn't get delivered, slow it down, and uh, and try again. Right. So as an example, um, you know, early on in the project, we, we didn't use this mechanism. So the routers talk to each other. And of course, the routers are exchanging information about themselves, you know, hellos and such. Am I still alive? I'm still your neighbor, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, so those are the, kind of, those are the control messages. And then we found that when we streamed large volumes of traffic through it, that the routers would lose each other because, because of the you know, the congestion was affecting the control messages. Then we switched to separate sessions. And now that, you know, no matter how hard you push it, the routers talk to each other with priority and, and very low bandwidth, of course. Do I have to tune that or is simply separating the traffic into different channels? AMQP's specification just deals with that effectively. Well, the specification gives you the mechanism by which to do it, and the router uses that capability. And there is a there is the ability to actually prioritize certain traffic over other traffic, if you wish, as you might think. Since you know, I mentioned before that a TCP is converted into a streaming delivery, a streaming message. So, what about the head of line blocking? I've got long flowing connections here that are going; uh, they're taking up the channel. Well, the the way the router works is it will allocate a new 
um, channel for every connection that comes through. So there's actually a separate queue for each one. So a new queue comes up for every connection. There's no head of line blocking. Sounds pretty slick. Another question here then, uh, multicast and anycast. As I was reading up on the on AMQP, it's different the way it deals with multicast and anycast because it's sort of inherent in what it is and how it, how it functions and how uh, AMQP thinks with Vans. So why don't you walk us through that? In networking speak, multicast and anycast are the words that we understand. In messaging speak, it's queuing and topics, right? They mean exactly the same thing. Like a topic is a multicast where I can send information and I can have subscribers. It's also called PubSub or publication. I was just thinking, boy, it sounds like PubSub. Okay, it is. Got right, it. so topic and PubSub really kind of mean the same thing. And then in a queuing scenario where I'm a producer, I put something in a queue, and then you know a number of consumers come along and grab things out of that queue. Well, that's the anycast. And that's, that's the messaging world. And of course, we don't have queues or topics in Scupper, but the protocol, as you mentioned, is kind of built around those ideas. Now, I should point out here that the remit of AMQP is a point-to-point connection. It doesn't go beyond that. So AMQP has nothing to say about, well, how do I build networks? You know, what about intermediaries? How do I deal with all that sort of stuff? There's no standard for that at present. Um, The the standard really ends at the point-to-point link between the routers. So the idea of how we use the addresses and how we do the semantics around anycast and multicast, that's scupper specific. Okay. And was was designed and built around this. Well, actually it came from the Apache Cupid project, but it's uh, it lives on here in scupper. So then with, with multicast and anycast, um, it sounds like I'm dealing with a bunch of nodes that if they are... Tell me if I'm using the terminology wrong here, but if I'm subscribed to the right topic, you said that's not that's not exactly right, but 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 functionally, that's conceptually what's going on here. I'm going to receive a copy of that frame. In other words, as a scupper router, I'm going to know who all the endpoints are that should be receiving this, and I'm going to send everybody a copy. You got it exactly right. So again, it comes down to the addressing. So if I if I have a producer for an address, you know, think think of it as. Um, you know, we've actually done this. Uh, it doesn't work well with things like HTTP or TCP-based protocols, right? Because TCP doesn't really do multicast, right? But we have done a demonstration using UDP where I have, I have a UDP producer. Well, it's producing to a particular service address, a van address. And I may have consumers all throughout my network that are saying, well, I, you know, I'm hooking in here. I'm opening a socket, but I'm, I'm receiving on that same address. I'm opening up a socket that's the proxy for that address. So what the network then does, what Scupper does, is it knows, well, I've got consumers for this address at you know point X, Z, and Q, and it's being produced here at A, and I need to get everybody a single copy of everything I, that gets sent. And if you come at this from a messaging standpoint, it's incredibly complicated, especially if you have redundant topologies, which you ought to have. So if there are multiple paths and redundant, you know, redundant paths, then ensuring that you send one copy to everybody is uh, is is complicated, and that's that's kind of the work that Scupper the Scupper router does. Let's pause the conversation for a message from sponsor Pessler. If you're a regular podcast listener, you've heard countless mattress ads. Now, Packet Pushers is not the kind of podcast where you'd hear a mattress ad, but maybe this is the closest we'll get. Now, the thing is, the only time you really think about your mattress is when it causes you aches and pains. That's why your choice of mattress is one of the most important decisions you can make. It's the same thing with monitoring. Your monitoring solution shouldn't cause you any aches, and you shouldn't need to think about it. 
It's one of your most important decisions as an IT professional. Pessler PRTG monitoring software has been on the market for over 20 years and has over 500,000 users worldwide. Pessler PRTG Hosted Monitor is their cloud-based solution, which means Pessler takes care of updates, backups, and maintenance, and you just focus on monitoring. It's vendor agnostic with support for SNMP, WMI, flow protocols, and much more. Setup and configuration is quick. You can be monitoring within minutes without even installing any hardware. You get real-time dashboards and customizable notifications, and pricing is flexible. You have the choice of monthly or annual subscriptions based on the number of devices you need to monitor, so you can scale as needed. And Pessler is giving new customers 50% off their monthly subscription for the first three months. Go to PRTG.com, that's PRTG.com, and use the promo code PACKETPUSHERS, all one word, to take advantage of this offer. And make sure you always sleep soundly on a comfy mattress with a comprehensive monitoring tool. This offer ends October 2023. Now back to the podcast. Now you, you just mentioned using this for UDP applications, which kind of implies uh, stateless uh, to me. Uh, I can think of a, a simple application because this, this actually comes up a lot using Anycast for for DNS, for example. That's a pretty pretty commonly deployed thing in the uh, the global internet. Does AMQP Anycast work with a load balanced stateful application? You're saying that I've got multiple service instances and I am load balanced across them, but once I'm connected to one of those services, I want to stay on that that particular instance. That the stickiness problem, yeah, right, the stickiness problem. So yeah, it can it can deal with that, yes. And, and again, this is roadmap stuff. Right, right now, this is uh, something that you probably wouldn't do over Scupper today, but you will be able to do it. And the way that it works is that you have an address for the set of services, but then every service has its own independent address. And then you can apply stickiness in, you know, by cookie, by, you know, source IP, by header, you know, by whatever actually you want. At that point, you can say that, well, I will at first go to the specific service address that I know I've got cached. And if I can't reach that, then I will fall back to the general one and pick another pick another instance. So let's back it out a second and talk about something that you might see in a large Kubernetes multi-cluster deployment where um, the application architecture is based on microservices. I could have a whole bunch of servers that are ready to accept an inbound because of you know scaling requirements, whatever, for some particular query. It's an API call. Let's say there's 10 there are servers out there that are listening for this one particular service. Is the assumption that it's uh, I send an API get, I get a response back, um, and then we're done. And so that's the end of the transaction. Does does everybody that's in that, you know, able to respond for that query get a copy of this and the first one to respond? I guess I'm a little lost there. How does that go? No, because the, the load balancing happens at the TCP level. Oh, right. So, yeah. so think about it as, you know, like, for example, if I had a server instance in San Francisco and a server instance in New York, then my clients in New York would be typically sent to the local server and the clients in San Francisco would be typically sent to the local server or local servers, but they could fail over um, if one of them went down. If you have multiple servers, like you described, then the TCP is going to be, basically, it's going to be sent to the server that is going to give us the lowest latency. But I would still have a load balancer sitting in front of them outside of the scupper architecture. You could, yes, you could. And that, and that load balancer could have whatever stickiness you wanted to have. And that would be a valid way to solve that problem. 
Oh, wait a minute, though. But you're saying I don't have to. You're saying Scupper can do the load balancing for me. And what was the magic phrase you just said? Whoever's going to give me the, the fastest answer or something like that? We're back to any cast, right? See, one of the things I get a lot is I'm evaluating Scupper. I've got five servers, and I'm not seeing peer round robin. You know, I'm sending a request. You know, I'm sending five requests, and they didn't round robin. You know, what, what's wrong with it? And what we're actually doing is the router that gets the request is going, it, it, since, again, we're using AMQP, and AMQP has this, this notion that we call the disposition of delivery. So I know that if I send something to a server or to a destination, I know, first of all, whether it reached it and whether it was accepted by that service, by that destination. Or whether it was, you know, either rejected or, or what we call released, which is I can't deal with this right now. You know, you could send it to somebody else, or or I've accepted it and I'm working on it, but I'm not done yet. So we don't need to modify our service to do this. But the way the router actually encapsulates it, it says that well, I'm going to get this delivery. I'm I'm getting this encapsulated message, the stream. I'm picking a server. I've sent it to that server, and when that closes out, when it's done then I will say, okay, the message is, that delivery is settled, it's done. And that tells the network that, that it's no longer in process. It's not in the backlog any longer. So what that means is I may have a, a local queue of things to be delivered that haven't been delivered yet, or I may have actually delivered them to a server and it's in the server's local queue of things it hasn't processed yet. But in both cases, that's part of the backlog. And this protocol understands the backlog. So what we're actually doing is we're sending any new delivery to the destination that has the smallest backlog. Which has nothing to do with round robin. Which has nothing to do with round robin, right. And now you can weight it and and cost it if you wish, but that's just giving it some bias. But the result here is that, and this, again, is in the real world. So if I'm doing round robin in the real world, well, there's almost no way that I can guarantee that my two service instances are running at the same speed, have the same resources, have the same health. If there's any variance there, like one's running a little bit faster than the other, well, round robin's now going to increase my latency and it's going to decrease my utilization of my of my resources. And what, what Scupper is doing is just saying, well, I'm going to actually pick the lowest backlog at this time. So it's a, it's a bit adaptive in that regard. And then the server that's running a little bit slower will get proportionately less traffic. And I will increase my utilization and I will... I'm not going to say reduce the latency, but I'm going to even out the latency. I'm going to reduce the jitter. And that's really our goal. You somewhat just answered this question, but how does AMQP know if a receiver is dead or otherwise unable to process a message? Sounds like the disposition of delivery. Well, yeah. So if I've got a receiver that's live, this is kind of the nightmare scenario, right? Where I've got the receiver that's live, it's accepting connections, but it's not doing anything. You know, like, like I hit control Z and it's suspended. <clears throat> In that case, you know, it'll get deliveries, but those deliveries will be hung. And it, the network will immediately stop sending stuff to it after that because it, its backlog will go to the threshold and, and, and everybody else will get all the remaining traffic. And then there's also a control plane that will eventually kick that guy out so we won't send anything there. Pretty similar then if there's a packet loss in the network where maybe, maybe it's an MTLS packet that's going in between scupper routers and it falls off the wire for some reason. Is there a unique way that that is handled? It's just TCP retransmit. Just TCP retransmission. Okay. What about between the scupper router and an endpoint? If we have packet loss there, same same kind of thing. You know, if it's TCP protocol, it's just TCP retransmit. If it's UDP, then 
it's gone. Now, another thing you've mentioned here we've we've alluded to is this link state routing protocol. So I build a network of scupper routers and they up at layer seven have all these different virtual application networks that they are able to carry traffic for. And there's redundancy and resiliency built in, but that's not part of AMQP, as you said. But there's, again, some kind of link state routing, best path and redundancy and costs and all of that, which sounds very uh, OSPF-like. Yeah. Yes, it is just like ISIS or OSPF. Because we are networking at layer seven here, and, and here's where the, the, again, this is where the abstraction happens, right? So I'm, instead of addressing hosts and using a port selector to pick the process on that host, I really want to deal with destinations and services directly. So we've we've raised that abstraction. We've added an address effectively to layer seven. And in order to do the, you know, be able to find the right path to where my my destinations and my services actually live, um, we're using a protocol that works. It's not OSPF because OSPF is really built around IP, but it works like OSPF. It's got the same structure. It's got the same um, protocol structure. Uh, it, it Basically, the, the the crux of OSPF or link state routing is that every router discovers its neighbors and tells the whole world about its neighbors, as opposed to the other kind, which is the, you know, the distance vector where every router discovers the world and tells its neighbors about the world. And, and there's a lot of technical problems with that. So in link state, we discover our neighbors, we establish bidirectional connectivity with our neighbors, and then we tell everybody in the network, here, here are my neighbors. And then everybody has the same picture of the neighbor relationships. It can use Dijkstra's shortest path algorithm then to compute the paths to that network from its own perspective. And that's the way it works. So there are two layers to it. The lowest layer is the van itself. What are the routers and how are they connected and what's the topology? And that's where the link state happens. So I'm not doing link state recomputation every time a socket is opened or every time I add a service. That's at a higher level. So at a higher level, I'm going to say, well, okay, now that I know how to reach all the sites in my network, now the question is, well, what services are resident at what sites? And then I can go down. So I say, okay, I need to reach, you know, service, you know, machine learning X or whatever. And I know that that is at site Z. And I can then drop down and say, well, what's my best path to site Z? Okay, I'll use that. That all sounds like traditional uh, packet forwarding, except we're doing it uh, up at layer seven at the the application layer. Doesn't sound really much different at all. It's not. But it is all happening in, like the topology that we're competing against are these symmetrical MTLS tunnels? Tunnels, symmetrical MTLS tunnels are are the edges in the graph. Something that I'll correct a little bit of what you said is that that the the router is part of a van. It doesn't do multiple vans. So I can create a van. It consists of a certain number of routers in a particular topology. It uses this link state protocol to compute the topology today, now. And then it says, okay, now I know where everything is and I know how to get there. And that way, if I, you know, if I remove something, then it adjusts very quickly. Or if I add something, it adjusts very quickly. If something fails, it routes around very quickly. And if I have you know a million services in my van or a hundred thousand services with different addresses, if if something drops, I'm not doing an order a million thing. It's basically saying that okay, I still know that my services are at site Z. I just have a different path to site Z, even though I may have. 
250,000 things at site Z that I'm interested in. So it's an order one operation at that point. Yeah, I was thinking every service was a virtual application network effectively, but we're talking about one virtual application network that carries a bunch of services in it. Yes, got it. Now, where did that link state routing protocol come from? Is that something that uh, that you wrote? Is it part of another project? Uh, it's, it's something that I wrote, actually. It was in order to solve. We, we were using Cupid Dispatch Router. We were working with the North American Railroads, actually. And they were building a continental scale messaging network. Um, and they were using traditional messaging capabilities. And that's really where this came from. The, the, the idea was that we really need a better way to forward and route across this large network at layer seven. And that's where this came from. The, the, you know, every, all, all roads kind of led to, let's just do the hard thing and build a real routing protocol the way, you know, the way this needs to be solved. It's part of Scupper. Scupper is open source. So I guess in effect, this is open source then too. Correct. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Yes. Since Scupper, and in fact, Scupper is kind of written like an appliance. It's written in C, but the, that particular part of the routing protocol is embedded Python. So it's hmm. not, particularly um, sensitive to performance. It's a thing that we expect to change on the order of, you know, several times a minute, maybe at, at the max. Um, and that, that made the implementation of it much, much more straightforward. And if somebody wants to look at it, it probably makes it a little bit easier to understand as well. All right, Ted, just a few more topics before we close out the podcast here. Scupper security, I think, is uh, is a key one. Uh, we haven't really touched much on it yet other than to mention you know, MTLS and, and so on. Can you walk us through Scupper security design and the, the benefits of, uh, of that design? Yes. So this is actually a really interesting topic. So as we've said many times, when you create your van, when you create your routers in your locations that you want to use for your application, and again, like if I've got an application... I might have 25 different applications. I could just have 25 different vans that are independent of each other. So it's really just a way of saying that I've got my distributed application and I'm spreading that domain of trust for that application out into different sites. So the routers connect to each other using mutual TLS. Mutual, of course, meaning that they both ends have a certificate that must be validated. We generally, you, can, you know, you can use the default where it'll just create its own self-signed certificates for authorities and get you up and running. But in a real world situation, if you're going to use this, you know, in a, in, a, in a real enterprise situation, you would manage your own certificates. So you would create a certificate authority for the van. Every router would have a certificate signed by that authority and what we're really concerned about here is we don't want routers that are unauthorized to join the network. So that's the thing. We've got this, we've locked down the membership of the network. And once we've done that, now the services can run flow, flow freely over that network. And now the services may also use MTLS or TLS or any kind of security that you want. That's really up to the application. We're agnostic to that. But if you think about how this how this works, here's a distributed scenario that, with regard to security. Let's say I've got a mainframe database in my in my location, and and I've got a service that I want to run um, in the public cloud because I want to rent compute processes to use that database. So I can now extend my distributed application out to that public cloud using a van, and that service has an API that I need to access in order to control it, to you know, run it, to query it, whatever it might be. 
what I don't want to do is open up an ingress that can be publicly accessed for that service. So what I do is I put that service, it's out running in public cloud someplace, but there's no ingress. There's, it's a headless cloud environment. The connection it made to establish the routers might be outbound to some DMZ or some common location. So now I've got a, say a Kubernetes cluster with no ingress and I'm running my workloads there and I can access it from within my enterprise. So it is ex over the van. So it's exposed over the van in a secure way, but there's no ingress. There's no attack surface on it. From the internet, I can't scan and find that Kubernetes cluster because it's not exposed. Right. It has no address. Yeah, it, it doesn't even have an, a public address. And, vi and vice versa, I could have a service inside my location, inside my enterprise that I want to be able to access from the public cloud. And again, I don't open up a VPN to access that. It just uses this v this um, this van multipoint to multipoint tunnel, if you will. Now, with the MTLS, you mentioned certificates. I've got a certificate authority um, that I've created to for this. I don't want unauthorized nodes to join the van. I think I missed a detail there. What's stopping me from having a van that's got a legitimate certificate, possibly, and and joining? If you have a van that's made up of a number of a constellation of routers for your application. And somebody else, an attacker, comes along and says, well, I'm going to fire up my own scupper router. I'm going to join his van. He can only do that if he's got a certificate signed by your certificate authority. Okay. So we're assuming that if a node has got the ability to pull a legitimate certificate, that it's it's an authorized node. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. That's kind of basic okay. X509. So. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> so there's another aspect to this. So now, now I've got, like, say I've got my database that's in my enterprise that's now accessible from workloads in my public cloud. So you might think, well, there's, you know, that, that's a bit of an issue because I've got public infrastructure now able to access my database. So now on one hand, that's what I wanted. So I'm willing to take whatever risk it's, is associated to, or I've, I'm taking a measured risk, right, in doing that. But if I used a VPN, I would be exposing the entire network or I'd be exposing at least the entire host. And, and what the van does is it only exposes the socket. Because our addressing is using that service address at layer seven, there is no port, right? The port selector is only locally significant. It gets me to my proxy socket. But the port's not carried across this network. It only uses the service address. And the service address is associated with some exposed service someplace else in the network, like my database. So if I were to... As an attacker, if I were to compromise that local cluster and get access to that host and the van is running, I can't port scan across that van connection. I can't come into your enterprise and you know, run Metasploit against what's, you know, what I can access. I can only access that database endpoint. So the only thing I could do is maybe exploit that database, but there's no, there's no way to do other kinds of probes. If I'm a scupper administrator, I need to expose particular services in order for them to be accessible across the van. Yes, you explicitly expose them, yes. I didn't just build an open tunnel that I can now pump anything through that I want. It has to be you know, configured as a service that I want to carry uh, across the van. Correct. There's the two phases. I create the network, and then when the network's there, nothing's exposed. Now I explicitly say I want this service to be available at that location. Right, and it's only at the socket level, so there's so it's very it's a very narrow pinprick um, opening then. 
And again, it's ephemeral. I can take, I can just remove it. The other thing is that I've exposed no information about the internal network. So the public cloud process that's accessing my database can glean no information about the IP addresses or the IP structure of my internal network where my data, database lives. All it sees is some you know, local IP address that it can attach to as a proxy. If, I mean, that data does live somewhere because there's a mapping that has to happen between the service and, you know, the end node. So, but someone would have to get into the Scupper database itself. But that mapping does not exist at the public location. The only thing that exists there is that I've got this service address and I, I've got identities of other nodes that I know where, you know, where, where that service address lives. But I don't know what those nodes IP addresses are. I don't know. All I know is what's the next best hop router to get to them. You've got to actually get out to the to the edge node, uh, the edge of the van, the the last hop before you step back into the you know, the traditional network, if you will, where that mapping is going to happen. It's not data that metadata that you're sharing in link state routing or anything like that. Right. We're not we're not attempting to make a layer three network connection across this network. Right. Okay, so now we talked a bit about Kubernetes and uh, and Scupper. If I'm a Kubernetes admin, do I need to be careful to make sure I'm not overly permissive with Scupper? So there's a couple ways to think about this. First of all, Scupper doesn't require any privileges. So you don't need cluster privileges or root privileges to use it. So it's not actually doing anything that your users can't already do. Of course, it's, it's making it easier for you to do these things. On the other hand, we, we've answered this question enough times that um, we've actually provided a policy. It's it's a custom resource in the in the Kubernetes world. So the so this custom it's a, it's just basically a piece of YAML that you can put into your cluster that is the the Scupper policy. So you can use that to say, okay, here are the namespaces that first of all are even even allowed to use Scupper, and those that are allowed to use it. Here's what they're allowed to connect to and whether they're allowed to be connected to. And here are the services that they can expose, and here are the services that they can access. So you can actually, as a cluster admin, lock it down and say, no scupper at all. Or you can say that these particular namespaces are allowed to use it. or And you can then restrict how they, how, how they can be used. So that's actually, there's, there is that capability there. Now, before we move off the security topic, is there anything else that you wanted to bring up related to scupper security that I didn't think to ask, Ted? So imagine, if you will, a classic web application where I've got a server that's deployed someplace that, you know, and the world can access it. And that server then is making access to backend infrastructure for the purposes of whatever application it's doing. So I've got the server, but I've got backend databases, backend processing, all that kind of stuff. Because I've got this symmetric protocol, what if the network, instead of my server contacting the van in order to proxy to my backend, what if the van contacted the server? What if I programmed my van to establish a connection to my server using AMQP in this case, and the server then used that connection to access the back end? Are you saying the server becomes an AMQP node? Yeah, it, it kind of does. I mean, it's not, it hasn't, it's not part of this network, but let's just say that this, and, and AMQP is not even that important here, but the point here is that the network made the connection to the server as opposed to the server making the connection to the network. So you could actually okay. have a situation where a hacker who gets into that server and compromises it and looks around might actually find a network where no outbound connectivity is possible. There's actually literally no, you know, the firewall rule is, you know, outbound, no, no. And, and that, that, that to me is kind of an interesting scenario from a security standpoint, because 
I've made it very difficult to, you know, even though all servers are vulnerable in ways that, you know, perhaps ways we don't yet know because they're zero day, but there's, you know, there's a way to get in there. There's, there's a vulnerability because I've opened up a public service, but what if from there, I made it very difficult to hop back into the back end where the real value was. Just a note, uh, you may or may not wish to include this in the actual podcast, but I, th- I just thought I'd, th- I thought I'd throw it out there for you. <laughs> no, it's, it's it's an interesting idea. I mean, and, and it mirrors some some more traditional firewall architectures. I mean, uh, DMZs. That's fundamentally what's going on there, or, or that that is a scenario where that could be going on there, depending on how you've deployed the DMZ. So, I mean, yeah, conceptually, that's that is very interesting. Now, you've painted it as a what if is just an idea. Um, and I, I saw, yeah, I know we don't want to dive too deep on this, but is this just an idea or is this something that's feasible in your mind? I actually built it. Um, the only thing I didn't do was uh, provoke some attacker to actually try it, pen test it. But it's on my, it's on my to-do list. All right. A couple of concluding questions for you, Ted. We've gone on a little extra long in this uh, in this show, but there's a couple more important things here. If I'm a traditional network engineer, I typically work down you know, layer, layer two, three, four. Is there anything I need to be thinking about to design an effective network for Scupper to ride on anything unusual? Or is it kind of like the normal rules, redundancy, resiliency, adequate bandwidth, reasonable latency? All those are the, the concerns uh, for Scupper as, as well. It's really the latter, right? Because obviously, you know, you need to have a good fundamental network over which to run. And it's very easy, you know, you could you could build a really bad network, right? So, because I could set it up so I've got an intermediary in Tokyo and all my traffic from uh, Boston to New Hampshire goes via Tokyo. So you could, you could do that in any situation. But Scupper is really designed around being a middle-of-the-road networking. It just uses traditional networking. It uses TCP IP for what it's good for and what's, what its strengths are. And it doesn't want to rely on SDN or, you know, fancy stuff, you know, things that you can't necessarily get from public vendors and such. So, you know, the, the real things you need to think about are, you know, if, if I'm really concerned about performance, I need to build my van around good network connectivity. And then uh, finding out more about Scupper, if I want to dig in, where should I go? The project's at scupper.io. There's examples there. You can get the code there. It's on GitHub. A lot of people that we found, you know, have even found that are using it in production, just went there and played around with examples, and then are start are, have used it themselves. There's, there's quite a quite a few users out there that are using it for various purposes, and that's a good place to start. And then Ted, you've got your own blog with a couple of uh, crucial articles on there that you've written. That just surprising that considering their age, how well they've held up and how significant they are. But that's uh, netprototalk.wordpress.com. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I've, I, my my ambition was to have this great blog with lots of really you know compelling articles in it, and um, I'm still working on that. But I, there, yeah, there are two articles there. <laughs> They're quite relevant to what we're talking about here. Um, some of them are actually one of them goes I think dates back to 2015. So if it's aged well, I guess I'll take that as a compliment. So yeah, and I'm I'm on Twitter slash X um, at Ted Ross one. I'm a software engineer. I haven't necessarily acclimated as well as I ought to, to the whole social network thing, but, uh, yeah, but you're on uh, Twitter slash X, whatever we're calling it these days. Yeah. 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 He, he wants to change yeah. us all. Yeah. And Scupper's also on, uh, you, on YouTube too. You've got some, some demos there, some talks that you've done. Uh, the Scupper's got its own channel with a bunch of those talks. So lots of information about Scupper, including a full documentation set. Yeah. Which we're continuing to work on. Yep. 
Yeah, and now I've talked to Ethan Banks. So, <laughs> well, Ted Ross, thank you for uh, joining us on Heavy Networking today. This was—I love conversations like this. I think there's some people that listen to this and go, "Banks, you went on for 75 minutes on Scupper." <laughs> yeah, but did you learn something? That was fun stuff. You know, so, congratulations for making it all the way to the end. And uh, and again, thanks for joining us today, Ted. If you're out there listening to this, you made it all the way to the end. Good job, you virtual high fives. And of course, all of our content is up at packetpushers.net. we got lots and lots of podcasts in the network now. Uh, if you head on up there, we have uh, Kubernetes Unpacked with uh, with Michael Levon. We've got Day 2 Cloud with me and, uh, and Ned Bellavance. Uh, Greg Farrow and uh, Jonah Till Johnson are having structured arguments on the Heavy Strategy podcast to help you figure out what technology might be right for your organization, a Network Break, the news podcast, and more. There's uh, several other podcasts up there along with our community blog and so much more. If you'd like to chat with uh, me and many other Packet Pushers listeners, you can go to our Slack group, packetpushers.net slash Slack, hit the link and to sign up. You can join us there. That's all free. That includes vendors too. Just no marketing, please, is all we ask. A marketing-free zone, just good people, engineers exchanging technical information about networking, cloud, and so on. Of course, we're on LinkedIn. Uh, we are still on Twitter, engaging in what way we don't know. LinkedIn seems to be a better place for a lot of that these days. So if you're on LinkedIn too, you can follow us there and uh, take a minute and rate us on Apple Podcasts. We would appreciate that. Last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough. <laughs>